Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Grab your stool. I'm pretty sure we don't have any good martinis again today. You can certainly uh, claim these are three crazies. I think the first one's bad. I'll leave the other two as definitely crazy. Uh, Jim, we do want to uh, start today. And again, we're not the deepest Anglophiles on the planet and certainly not monarchists, but it is the birthday of Queen Elizabeth II. She's uh, 94, been on the throne since 1952. Her first prime minister was Winston Churchill. So let that sink in. You know, everybody's making sacrifices at this uh, moment in time because the social distancing, the, the uh, not wanting to um, put anybody at risk with the coronavirus and so forth. So the queen has graciously canceled the gun salute for her birthday, Jim. So uh, I know it's everybody's making sacrifices these days, and it's good to see the Queen's doing the same. You know, Greg, even more graciously, she has said that the gun salute should not be aimed at Meghan Markle. <laughs> she did ask a uh, celebrity guest to give some coronavirus uh, uh, quarantine greetings to, to Markle. Uh, my understanding is that the Queen asked for uh, former baseball great Reggie Jackson to stop by. It's an odd choice, but I guess those who have studied 1980s cinema may recognize the significance of that. Was the now deceased uh, actor Ricardo Montalban in any way involved with uh, <laughs> or Frank Reggie Jackson? Guess, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Well, the good news is for the Queen, first of all, Jim, apparently there's two birthdays for the monarch in England for some reason. There's the real date and then there's the, uh, the official day of celebration. So that's one other good reason to separate from the crown. Nobody deserves two birthdays. Uh, while it's nice, it's certainly not necessary. And the other good news is, you know, you think, oh, well, she's 94. Uh, how many more gun salutes uh, is she going to get? Given how well she uh, seems to be doing health-wise, probably about 15 or 20 is my guess. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really, we had talked about her address to the country, uh, really into the world, uh, you know, a little while ago. And it's, you know, you're dealing with an astonishingly long-lasted monarch when she can think of this as like the fifth or sixth worst thing that's happened in her reign. <laughs> I haven't had dealt with anything like this since the Blitz, you know. I remember when I gave this speech 80 years ago. That that still boggles the mind. But Jim, my favorite uh, Queen Elizabeth reference today was, maybe we can make a vaccine out of whatever antibodies Queen Elizabeth and Keith Richards are carrying around because apparently they're indestructible. So. <laughs> I mean, by the way, just observe, the day Keith Richards dies is the one we all feel unbelievably mortal and vulnerable. <laughs> no one's going to believe it. Everybody's going to think it's the idea in our, the Babylon Bee, but... Uh, Everybody's time comes eventually, but uh, I don't think it's going to be time soon for the Queen, but we'll see. Uh, Jim, let's go to uh, what I think is a bad martini, clearly. Uh, yesterday, one of our crazy martinis, and could have been bad, was the plummeting oil market. When we originally recorded, it was like at $11, and then it was $8, and then by the time I posted it, I changed one sentence in there because it was down to a dollar, and by the time I actually put it on social media, it was minus 40 for the for may and then uh fortunately uh going out a little bit more in june and july the the prices were a little better but even if you don't like the fossil fuel industry it's probably not the best time to gloat and so aoc goes on twitter uh she responds to a tweet that says oil prices now at negative values meaning oil producers have to pay people to take it off their hands and store it because when demand plunges like now that is less expensive for them than building more storage. And AOC responds to that by saying, you absolutely love to see it. This, along with record low interest rates, means it's the right time for a worker-led mass investment in green infrastructure to save our planet. And she puts cough between two 
asterisk. I'm not sure what that's about. So, uh, Jim, uh, heartless is one word that comes to mind, and really bad at math is another one, given that uh, we now have a fully uh, stocked oil supply at dirt cheap prices. So, uh, which is more ludicrous coming from AOC right now? Yeah, I mean, the first thing was she's like, this is the time you invest in alternative energy. Wait a minute. <laughs> Oil's so cheap, they're paying you to hold on to it. And we, this is the time to put all of our money in solar panels and, and other stuff. Um, so the, one, there's the economic aspect that doesn't make sense. The second is how anybody could take glee or happiness in the thought that possibility lots of people could be losing their jobs, that lots of people could be out of work. Uh, businesses could go under, you know, again, this, there's, there's an empathy gap there that, you know, look, even, you know, there are publications I'm not a big fan of. It doesn't mean I necessarily want to see mass layoffs and see those publications go under. The next, you know, kind of comparison, I think it's interesting. I was thinking about this just as we were getting ready to go on today, Greg, and it's that recognition that tie this and the ha, lots of people will be out of work attitude initially expressed in that quickly deleted tweet by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the protests going on around the country uh, against the various quarantine rules and restrictions and things like that. There are probably some schmoes out there who are like, you got to reopen the gym, man, you know, or, you know, some, some rather less relevant, less life and death industries. But by and large, you see a lot of signs that say things like, I just want to work. I want my job back. I want to be able to reopen my business, right? I want to work. That's a rallying cry that should be able to get every, you know, whatever your view on the particular wisdom of a particular restriction. At minimum, you should sympathize. At minimum, you should say, okay, that's not people asking for a, a handout. That's not laziness. That's not a sense of entitlement. That is saying, up until these, you know, this virus came along, I had a good job. I had a way of supporting myself and my family. These government restrictions took that away. I want you to undo this. Right? This is a very understandable uh, viewpoint for people to have. And yet the general tone, not just from uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but you know, most left of center commentators is that these people are loons, these people are nuts, these people are um, deranged rednecks and reckless and, and all this kind of stuff. This is just an observation. Like, Greg, if you listen to the progressives, they're totally convinced that they're on the side of working people, but they act like they've never met any. In the sense that, like, here are actual working people saying, I want to go back to work. And they're getting this snotty derision and, and you know, mockery and, and uh, sneering and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it just is, it's a, it's a, the fact that she deleted the tweet means she recognized how bad this was to say and how you're not supposed to say these sorts of things out loud and you're not supposed to take glee in the misfortune and hardship of others. But uh, I think if there's any silver lining to this bad martini, I think it's, it's revealing. I think this indicates that there is a, I'm actually a little bit surprised that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the uh, factor she is in democratic politics today. I think if you're seeing, after seeing her endorsement of Bernie Sanders, then watching Bernie Sanders crash and burn in the 2020 uh, primary, I think you can kind of wonder, maybe she isn't the voice of the new generation that a lot of Democrats seem to think that she is. Um, but that is, uh, I, I think she simply cannot see the world as many other people do. I think she can't articulate her arguments in a way uh, that does so. I think she just has this, you know, um, arrogant combativeness that is her default setting for all of these issues that she encounters. And as a result of that, she's going to end up being a very unpersuasive figure on the national stage, uh, in part because when things like this happen, that's how she reacts. 
So, Jim, in, in looking at this, it seems like there is a partisan divide, or maybe that's just how the media would like us to believe, on the reopen versus uh, hunker down longer debate. And uh, to some extent, it's uh, exacerbated by the fact you see Gadsden flags and, and Trump flags and some of these rallies to reopen. And so the, the question is, do you think that's accurate? And secondly, are we at a point now where even a crisis this deep the partisan lines are not going to be blurred when it comes time to rally a country together. Well, let's observe that the worst hit places in the country are cities, right? New York City, Detroit, northern New Jersey is technically suburban, but it's a fairly densely packed suburban area. Uh, New Orleans, although the news is looking a little bit better there. And generally, you find most big cities in this country to be heavily democratic. Our partisan divide is in many ways a geographic divide, that you have Democrats in the cities and the inner ring suburbs, and you have Republicans in the outer ring, the exurbs, and the rural areas. And unsurprisingly, rural areas have fewer people in them, that's what makes them rural. <laughs> That's, you know, as a result of it, social distancing when your next neighbor is like a mile over on the next farm, it's a little bit easier. It's a little bit, you know, cities and, and rural areas are going to have one different, you know, incidences of, of, uh, uh, rates of, uh, of infection, but the kinds of rules that are necessary in an urban area may not be so necessary in a rural area. Um, you know, you're not living right on top of each other. You're not all using mass transit. Um, if, as we strongly, as a lot of people are starting to really strongly suspect, the subway system in New York City is the single biggest factor of why they have so many more cases than everybody else. Well, if you're in a rural area that doesn't have a subway, then you're, you're probably going to be fine. And maybe you don't need so many restrictions on your life. Um, so it, it's one of those things where I'm not surprised it's breaking down this way. It's one of the reasons it's kind of good to see things being handled at the state level. I look at the numbers in Georgia and I don't see the curve bent. I see the curve plateaued. Uh, it's not going down yet. And I think that's a, uh, not a hundred percent doing, doing cartwheels of enthusiasm for, you know, Georgia lifting its restrictions as soon as it is. But also a flip side is that most urban hospitals at least have enough of a cash cushion to get through all this rural hospitals because of the restrictions on elective procedures we talked about yesterday. They're, they're at death's door metaphorically and financially. So, you know, it's not surprising that people who live in different areas, different, you know, part, uh, geographical areas are going to ha have different responses to, oh my goodness, these restrictions are absolutely necessary. Look at how many people are dying versus wait, nobody in my community has died yet. We've only got one or two cases. Why am I being asked to stay in my home like I live in an apartment in New York City when I live in the middle of South Dakota or North Dakota or Colorado or, or North Carolina or wherever it is? There is a definite divide in different conditions in different places. Uh, you mentioned the hotspots and other places have uh, basically shut down for, in some cases, a few dozen uh, confirmed cases of COVID, probably more that are asymptomatic. But uh, yeah, different circumstances require different responses. So let's move from socialism to communism now, Jim, as we go to our first crazy martini. And uh, last night, CNN coming out with this from their CNN International Twitter account, breaking the U.S. is monitoring intelligence that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is in grave danger after surgery, according to a U.S. official. Now we have Katie Turr over at MSNBC tweeting out just a short time later, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is brain dead. According to two U.S. officials, he recently had cardiac surgery and slipped into a coma, according to one U.S. current and one former U.S. official. NBC News confirms and adds to the CNN scoop from me 
and a couple other people that she tags there. Uh, and so then uh, a lot of people reacting to that, uh, wondering what the Washington Post headline's going to be. Uh, uh, there is, in fact, a Kim Jong-un obit soon. But then, Jim, miraculously, we have a different response. And Reuters gets uh, South Korean government officials to say this. South Korea government source tells Reuters reports of North Korea's Kim's grave illness was untrue. So, Jim, two thoughts come to mind here. You and I think are both old enough to remember uh, the early 80s when uh, Brezhnev was not seen in public for a while. And there were rumors going around that he's very sick and possibly on the brink of death. And, of course, the Kremlin's response was, it's just a cold. He's going to be fine for (laughs) weeks on end. And then, oh, well, you know, actually he died. Now, we had that with a couple more uh, Soviet leaders as well. Uh, Kim Jong-un was not seen at the uh, recent event, I think, honoring his grandfather's birthday. And so now these rumors are flying. And so Katie Turr ended up deleting that tweet, said she needed to wait for more information. And now this morning, it's like none of this ever happened, Jim. So either this is the worst intel ever or something else is going on. What's going on? Well, so I'm going to my first I'm going to give one half hard defense of Katie Turr. And that is that, I mean, Greg, metaphorically, you could say he's brain dead. <laughs> I mean, if you're saying, oh, yeah, guys, that guy's brain dead. You know, okay, fine. Yeah. But, you know, clinically and medically, no, probably not. Um, look, it is hard to report on what's going on inside a dictatorship in the world's most secretive society. That having been said, I like to repeat this anecdote of, it was, you know, 1999, 2000 or so, I was working at a dot-com. Somebody in our office heard a rumor that uh, Saddam Hussein had either just been assassinated or just died of some kind. So I start calling around to every Iraq-watching defense think tank type guy I can reach, and they say, look, pro- this is pro- and then a very smart guy, who unfortunately his name escapes me, I can't remember, but yeah, I, I, don't, won't, I won't forget what he said, was like, when something like this happens in a closed society, our intelligence communities, all the people who are watching through satellites and spies and all that kind of stuff, they may not know exactly what happens or what happened, but they know that something is happening, right? You see defense units go on alert. You see people moving around. You see people reacting to whatever this big, unexpected, dramatic event was. Um, And so even though you may not know exactly what they're reacting to, you do know that they are uh, rea- something has changed. Something has disrupted the regular routine. Um, now, look, when Kim Jong-un does not appear for a event he usually would appear at, that's probably something worth raising your eyebrows about. Um, clearly, this is something that is on the radar screen of U.S. intelligence. But the fact that South Korea is saying, yeah, we don't think this is the case, the fact that China is saying, we don't think this is the case, chances are this isn't the sort of thing they'd be able to keep quiet for too long. Um, too many people would be reacting in a way. And as I said, today's morning jolt in a rare, you know, this is one of the, give you an example of just how, what a crazy state the world is in. I actually felt a little bit of relief at hearing that Rocket Man had not yet kicked the bucket because the last thing we need is a struggle for power and secession in a country that's got a nuclear weapon right now. Not a fan of Kim Jong-un, but I would just rather not, you know, see some sort of terrible civil war ending with Dennis Rodman ruling the country or something like that. <laughs> um, as much as I'm enjoying, make it a fascinating part 11 of The Last Dance, uh, the, 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 the post the note of, of Kim Jong-un passing secession to Dennis Rodman. You know, all in all, look, yes, it's hard to report on what's going on in North Korea. It sounds like CNN and uh, Katie Turr of MSNBC and other folks probably should have been a little more cautious uh, I don't doubt their sources were saying that, but no doubt there are lots of folks who hate the North Korean regime who would like to spread this kind of 
uh, message around just to stir up confusion and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, you know, 50 lashes with a wet noodle, not good. Uh, should have double checked it, should have been more cautious in how they worded it, but uh, not, not enormously shocked that you could end up having sketchy reports coming out of North Korea that don't pan out. So this is a little bit different, Jim, but I remember you saying uh, during all the uh, supposed Russia scoops, some of which uh, turned out to be very much not true, where you would say things like, uh, well, you know, when it turns out not to be true, maybe you should either not trust the source again or perhaps even burn the source publicly if it happens certainly more than once. So is this a little bit different because it's a closed society or do you have to uh, uh, encourage these reporters to uh, make sure you've got at least one, if not two other sources the next time this person gives you something juicy? I was going to say, you'd like to think that at minimum you have a mental note to be a little more cautious when you hear this. I, I would say my suspicion is, is that this report probably came from some sort of North Korean exile groups uh, based out of, based out of South Korea. I don't know that for certain, but those are the folks who seem, would seem to have the best uh, sources within the country, the most likely to get the, get a message through, et cetera. Uh, I do note one of the reports did mention U.S. Uh, government sources. Again, since we don't have a satellite looking at Kim Jong-un all the time, let's also note Kim Jong-un, um, look, there are not a lot of people in this world that I can make fun of for being fat. Kim Jong-un is one of them. <laughs> so, and we got a coronavirus going around, right? And it's very bad if you're obese to, you know, be, uh, be fighting the coronavirus. So the idea of Kim Jong-un kicking the bucket at a time like this, not the craziest thought. That is the state of things. I, look, yes, they probably should be more careful. But again, the alternative is, you know, you're getting information from sources like this that may or may not know what they're talking about or no information coming out of North Korea at all. Jim, if Dennis Rodman somehow did become the new leader of North Korea, would that even crack the top five of weird things that happened in 2020? <sighs> it's a high, <laughs> high bar. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's kind of early in the year, but uh, that, that, you know, you like to think that even, it's only marginally crazier than Trump becoming president. All right, on to our final crazy martini now, Jim. And speaking of uh, presidential campaigns, uh, Joe Biden is out there openly wishing that Michelle Obama would be his uh, running mate. He claims, though, that he doesn't think she really wants to be back in uh, the White House and uh, have that sort of uh, attention. He thinks she kind of likes being a private citizen again, but uh, I think he still kind of wishes that she would uh, be the running mate. That's who he seems to be very clear his preference is, but he says it will be a female running mate. Uh, And one of the names that, of course, keeps coming up is uh, former Georgia state lawmaker Stacey Abrams. She, of course, ran for governor in 2018. She lost. She didn't really ever admit that she lost, but she admitted that she's not going to be the next governor. She's uh, being talked about in the media. And she was on CBS this morning with Gail King today. And Gail King said, uh, you know, so uh, what makes you a a good uh, possibility to be uh, Biden's running mate? And so she says, uh, this is what qualifies her. Why do you think that you'd be a good choice for Joe Biden? Part of my response to not becoming governor in 2018 was not to hide my head, but to really work on addressing the core issues facing our country. I've set up a a national 18-state infrastructure to protect our elections. I've set up a seven-state organization that is working on the census. And through the Southern Economic Advancement Project, I've been able to work with Propel Fresh EBT and get connected with GiveDirectly to address the economic needs of our most economically vulnerable and least resilient communities. So she talks about running this whole, uh, you know, anti-voter suppression uh, effort that she's got. Meanwhile, her campaign manager's out there saying that uh, they... They had a revolutionary turnout in minority vote in 2018. So go figure. But then Gail King says this. 
Well, I just want to say this. That's a great nuts and bolts answer because everybody knows you're extremely qualified. So there you go, Jim. This woman started an organization and she was a state lawmaker and therefore she is extremely well qualified. <laughs> it's not like the media is playing favorites here or anything, right? Well, first of all, I guess, you know, if you'd said, you know, some version of Ms. Abrams, aren't you tremendously underqualified for the presidency? That interview is going to get a lot more hostile <laughs> real fast. <laughs> so maybe this is just a matter of, uh, buttering up the person you're interviewing. But let's, let's take a, a good look at this if you're Joe Biden. What does Stacey Abrams get you that other candidates don't? I mean, she's, she's a, you know, icon of the Twitter left, right? You know, did she put Georgia in play? I don't think that's the case. Uh, you know, she didn't win it. You know, she didn't win it in a really good year for Democrats. You think she's going to win it in a presidential level turnout in Georgia? I'm not so sure. She is very, very progressive. You probably couldn't run the entire uh, Bernie Sanders playbook uh, or, you know, that against her, but you could run a good chunk of it. Um, we understand that, you know, Biden did have conversations with her very early in this process. And there was already some speculation that in order to, you know, dissuade all the rivals, uh, Biden was going to name her early, and he clearly did not. I kept, you have to strongly suspect that his, you know, cooler heads prevailed, and it would have seemed like a desperation move. Um, the other thing is like, look, what got Joe Biden the Democratic nomination? Well, in most of these states, it was African Americans. So, what does she add that he doesn't already have? I'm, I'm not so convinced that this is a massive, uh, uh, you know, get for him that would would bring in a lot of voters that uh, he otherwise. You know, should should Democrats be worried about African American turnout and enthusiasm? I, I guess you could. You know, it's probably safe to say that African Americans like Joe Biden, probably not as much as they like you know Barack Obama, but that's you know, that's a really high bar to clear. I don't know what she gets you. That it was, and I think that she is exactly the kind of person that the Trump campaign would love to run against, right? So you've got him being as aged as he is. I think if you've been watching his uh, appear, you know, appearances from his basement in Delaware, he's not looking at his most articulate and sharp and all that stuff. This is a really important choice for Joe Biden. People need to be reassured by that. And so I don't know if a Stacey Abrams pick makes America say, ah, okay, God forbid something happens to Joe Biden. We're in good hands. We're, we're going to be great. Most Americans have no idea who Stacey Abrams is. She's never been elected to anything statewide. She's, you know, she's been you know, no, famous for insisting she won the Georgia uh, governor's race when she lost by about 50,000 votes. Norm Coleman losing by a couple hundred up in Minnesota. Okay, I can understand that complaining. Al Gore, okay, you know, 537 votes in Florida. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a stinger of a loss. That, that's really, you know, 50,000 votes? That's not that close. I, you know, this, this may be much ado about over nothing, but this whole, like, it, it's very interesting how much the folks on the left have convinced themselves that Stacey Abram is this juggernaut that could clinch the race for Biden, when I think the evidence of that is slim and few, few and far between, and uh, just kind of left scratching our head of, you know, are the Democrats actually foolish enough to convince themselves into making the wrong decision uh, in a circumstance that, look, you know, unemployment's in very high, the suburban voters who abandoned the Democrats in 2018, there's very little indication they're going right. Uh, there's very little indication that those folks have come back, the, the you know, suburban soccer moms, et cetera. But the, the, the argument of Republicans was that's okay because we're going to make up for it in, you know, white working class voters, the folks who carried those upper Midwest states for Trump back in 2016. Well, those white working class voters have very high unemployment rates right now. Now, maybe by fall, things are better. Hopefully by, by fall, things are better. But probably by fall, things may not be back 100%.
I don't know if they're in a great shape for 2020. Do you want to throw gamble all of that on Stacey Abrams or do you want to go with somebody like Amy Klobuchar who's probably a safer choice? There are a bunch of choices that get you everything Stacey Abrams gets you with none of the risks of Stacey Abrams. Jim, can we do a Venn diagram on the people that think Stacey Abrams is a great VP choice with the people who thought Beto O'Rourke was a great presidential candidate idea? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, there would be that. Also coupled by the people who uh, would, it's, you know, again, I'd love to do the time machine for everybody who looked back at Sarah Palin. Because at least she was a governor. At least she'd been running a state for a while. So, you know, this is also the sense of, I'm sure if you look back, a lot of these people would have said that Mike Pence was terribly underqualified. And, you know, who is this, you know, corny guy from Indiana? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On that note, Jim, I don't think it's going to be Stacey Abrams, but we'll see if uh, he can coax Michelle Obama out of retirement. I don't think that's going to happen either, but it might. So uh, have a great day. Enjoy the rest of your quarantine day, and we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.